Welcome to the Surf and Stars Social Club podcast. I'm your host, Celestina, and I am a deep change facilitator. This is a show about reimagining and re-enchanting relationships with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Carrie Birch, pronouns she, they, who is an OWDHD, neuroaffirming occupational therapist and life coach on a mission to help people merge the lives they've created with their newly understood brains and needs. And for those of you who don't know, OWDHD is a combination of autism and ADHD. I warmly invite you to our conversation on boundaries as a hack for capitalism. I'm just going to really quickly read a list of stuff that I kind of wrote down literally in like the five minutes before this call. So the first thing is boundaries is a hack for capitalism. And then you posted some other stuff on your Facebook that I thought was like kind of beautifully phrased. So boundaries as an exquisite everyday rebellion against oppressive systems, boundaries as system disruption or... I kind of want to start maybe high level, like philosophical, like, you know, what is the problem with capitalism? Like, why do we need to hack it? Like, why is boundaries a good hack? And then kind of work our way down into like really granular examples and then like pragmatic creation and application. Does that sound good? That sounds wonderful. I'm excited. Okay. Okay. Well, so let's start with this whole idea of boundaries is a hack for capitalism, because I really, for some reason, that phrasing is like really exciting to me. I'm like, oh, this feels really juicy. It's so juicy. Okay. So yeah. So how about you just kind of unfold that for us? And I want to kind of really unpack your definition for each one of those words, like capitalism, why we need to hack it um like what kind of what you mean when you say hack and then you are a boundaries expert so talk a little bit about how boundaries can be a hack does that sound good yeah that sounds great okay so how i think about this and i've just learned some more like explanations or vocabulary words for this which is helpful love vocabulary Uh, yes so um this was posted by a new friend that i met who does um, work about fair play. Have you heard of fair play life? No, but we can um, say a little bit about it. If you want to just give us like a high level, what is that? Sure. Okay. So fair play life is all about like domestic inequities and methods for um, evening out household labor in heterosexual relationships or not. But like, that's kind of what it was based on is basically, um, when women started going more into the workplace instead of just, um, not just, but instead of working at home, they still do and did and still do like 75% of household labor, even if they're also work, even if they're also working full-time and their partner does. So the language that I got that was helpful was, um, that often in capitalism, we are groomed to be ideal workers be groomed to be ideal workers. And I think that probably starts like in the school system of you get used to having like a nine to five life and you're supposed to be on all day and you're supposed to follow directions and do what's expected of you and do your best and get good grades. 
And then that translates work overtime with yeah, that work overtime. work. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then that transitions to like figure out what job you're going to have, what's your career going to be, and like find the job that's for you. And then you go to the job and you basically position your life around um, your job. So like the priority is saving energy so you can do your, do your job well. You get satisfaction and fulfillment theoretically from like doing this job that someone pays you every two weeks to do. And like zoom out the big picture is like most people are the little worker bees and they make some sort of a living, sometimes decent, sometimes not. And then up the chain of like corporations and healthcare CEOs are making like jillions of dollars. Yeah, I just want to say one thing um, before we get too far away from it, this idea of like being groomed to be an ideal worker. And you kind of did mention like a little bit the gender inequity. I will say another gender inequity I've noticed around this is that men especially, and I am just going to be very, use traditional terms and kind of overgeneralize, but men especially really tend to over-identify with career. So it's like this additional piece where like, not only are you an ideal worker, but that becomes your total sense of who you are. And so if anything gets disrupted there, like that destabilization runs so deep, like to your very soul or like what you experience your soul to be anyways, continue. Amen. And then also, if you have a family and you're like the primary breadwinner in quotes, or like the sole provider, then the pressure is on. Totally. Because no matter where you are, the stream of thoughts that like all my clients have shared in like slightly different words in slightly different contexts is like, well, if I don't X, Y, Z, like perform what's expected of me at work, then theoretically I could get fired and lose my health insurance and like lose my housing and become homeless. Yeah. I feel like we just need to repeat that because I feel like that is such a common belief slash fear And I feel like because it is so common, it almost becomes like automatic slash unconscious. And we don't even realize it's, so say it again, because I think that you said it just really succinctly. Um, If I don't perform what's expected of me at work, then theoretically I could get fired and lose my health insurance and lose my housing and become homeless. Hmm. Yeah, I think that is the, that is the fear. And I think that it's also interesting. It just kind of shows how our career for us right now is so close to survival and how anything around our career um, can be really activating in terms of our nervous system and just our like fight mm-hmm. flight response. So because it goes back to like basic safety, yes. like, Exactly. Small requests, small decisions end up triggering this like huge. Exactly. Like your boss is like, hey, can you do this extra project? And your brain is like. I'm going to get fired. Yeah. Like Like, you may not even know it's doing that, but like that's underneath the like urgency to like make the right decision to make sure you're okay. No, it's really interesting, like not to call out. um, I'll, I'll just say someone I know just to keep it super vague, but like someone I know has 
a job. It's a pretty demanding job. They're really good at their job. And they're always constantly worried that they're going to get fired or like constantly worried that they're like under scrutiny for like underperforming. It's crazy (laughs) what a toll it takes on their mental health. And even just um, like what we hold in working memory, like what our brain occupies itself with, like that's a thought that they're, is probably taking up a good, you know, significant chunk of whatever they're thinking about on a daily basis. Yeah. So, yeah. I have this analogy that I made up that's like based on spoon theory. And it's like and not say, for- wait, say a little bit about spoon theory just for people who don't know. Again, yes. spoon theory is basically a way of um was designed to conceptualize the limited um um amounts of cognitive emotional physical energy that people with disabilities have and they have all people have but like yes it was created for that yeah so I also made up um bean theory which is like so silly that I chose beans but it's like um like you have a certain amount of beans in your brain and like if half your beans are constantly like without you even realizing spending time in the like, oh my God, I could become homeless and like die. Mm -hmm. Then there's a lot less beans available for other things. Mm -hmm. So like we do have finite um, cognitive energy, especially if you're like just surviving in the capitalist world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So anyway, yeah. I can't remember why I interjected that, but. Well, I think just to make it explicit, um, another way to say that is surviving in the capitalist world takes a significant amount of cognitive energy just to survive, just to exist, you know? And so then it's interesting to think about like, who would I be if I got that cognitive energy back? Who would I be if I admit to myself that a large portion of my mental bandwidth is constantly just getting tripped up around like survival and around like all my worries around career and money. And if I got that back, what could I do with it? Ooh. Oh, that's really juicy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But any, okay. So maybe one way to just get us back on the rails here, (laughs) get some of that, of that back is boundaries, right? Yeah. Or like some type of boundary. So, um, so I think we've kind of painted a decent picture of why one might need to have capitalism, like the adverse ways that it is affecting our beans and our spoons and our nervous system. Um, And so what, what do you have to say about boundaries being a way to kind of begin to address that? Yeah. Well, I think that the popular narrative in our culture and like social media is like, oh, um, if you're struggling at work, like if you're struggling to perform, then you just need to like, quote unquote, take better care of yourself. And then the examples of that are like, um, take a nap on the weekends or like get a, take a bubble bath or like get a massage or get a pedicure or something. And those are so not getting at the whole issue of like your spoons and your beans. Hmm. Those are like little band-aids. Those are like painting a bean instead of like getting back all your beans. So basically boundaries helps you secure and like save your finite amount of energy 
for what's important um, according to your priorities and your values. So um, I feel like I just want to interject about compassion fatigue here because this is a really popular term. I'm also an occupational therapist. And so in healthcare, a really big issue is turnover and burnout. And um, so in response to that, a lot of hospitals or institutions um, require compassion fatigue as trainings for their workers, which is like um, burnout. It's like a nice word for burnout. And it has to do with like secondary trauma of like witnessing horrible things and really sick people and like grief and death and all these things. And so it's a lot, it's a lot about like, kind of, I think touching on, uh, like self-care and like deep breathing and like polyvagal theory and like relaxing and doing meditation or like those kinds of things. Mm. But, But using that as a means to be like, if you take care of yourself, right and like manage your compassion fatigue correctly, you should be able to function the way you're being asked to function, which is like ridiculous. Yeah. So I, it's so interesting because I feel like a really generally speaking, this is an example of where there's a systemic issue and individuals are being asked to treat it like an individual issue Yes, on an individual level, which is, I think more and more now we're seeing in the collective dialogue, people are realizing that that's what's going on and that that is like, it is like at best a band-aid solution. And at worst, like you're completely treating the wrong thing with the wrong thing. Um, and then the second, I wanted to say something else there. Um, but I, I don't know if I remember, um, I think I just, I wanted to give like an analogy. So this just popped in my head. Like it's someone who's living in like a moldy environment and is experiencing like health issues due to mold. But instead of like the environment being mitigated, they're just being told to take like certain supplements or like, you know, do um, like use a different detergent or like it's, it's that kind of thing where, mm-hmm. oh, this is the other piece that I was going to say. There's also like a, anytime there's a, like a euphemism being used, my ears perk up. So like compassion fatigue, like this <laughs> new, like kind of term being coined. I'm like, oh, that it's really interesting that we can't just speak straight around this or that we're having to coin this like very careful term, because I think it is kind of trying to normalize what is very not normal, which is this like relentless exposure to stuff that's really hard for us to process emotionally. And no amount of like meditation or breath work is going to stop that burnout. What needs to happen is the exposure needs to be cut down drastically. And that's what the system just isn't willing to do because it means paying more people. So um, there's also this normalization of conditions that are absolutely inhumane. Right. Exactly. Totally. So like, I want to acknowledge then that also having boundaries is an individualistic solution Mm. because it's like, oh, um, boundaries is the thing you can do to make it better. But I also want to point out one of the reasons that it's a hack is because if people start saying like, I don't have capacity to add that onto my workload, I'm not like, I'm not willing to work more than my contracted number of hours. 
then systems will be more likely to like have to confront their staffing and or, you know, they find someone who is willing to go do more. So there's like, that's a very real possibility too. Knowing that it takes a lot of bandwidth and money and resources to like um, hire and train a new person. So sometimes depending on your job, that's people want might want to keep you for that. Um, but yeah, I'm just acknowledging that real reality too. It's not like boundaries. It's like, I think it's, um, it can contribute to systems level change, but it is like a grassroots kind of a method. And I think that's really beautiful. And I think that is something that I wanted you to kind of speak on, which is this idea that like, yes, there's like a ton of systemic issues. And also as individuals, we can respond to that on a whole spectrum, right? Like we can feel totally victimized. Like there's absolutely nothing we can do. We are totally at the mercy of the system versus all the way at the other end of the spectrum where we think it's like entirely our responsibility. It's entirely in our control to change our entire experience. And then there's like everything in between. Mm -hmm. And so I do think there are, and I'm just going to, again, use these words. And I don't know if they're the best words, but like healthier and unhealthier or like better or worse ways to marshal your own agency around like mitigating your experience of something that is bigger than you. And I do think like just kind of blindly being like, well, I need more bubble baths is maybe like a less helpful way, but getting really strategic around boundaries is a more helpful way. And they do kind of fall kind of midway in that spectrum of just like completely surrendering versus like completely, you know, overtaking responsibility and refusing to see that the system is really contributing. Right. And like, similarly on the spectrum of like, I have no choice. This is my life until I retire and, oh, I must opt out entirely. Like it's kind of a mid, somewhere in the middle and involves choices and negotiations versus just like, either like you said lack of action or opting out which for most people an option to opt out so there you go well it's interesting too because I I do think because we have this either conscious or unconscious fear of like if I rock the boat I'm gonna end up homeless is basically what it is then we think to ourselves that we can't speak up about anything ever at all when in reality you probably can keep your job and you can talk to your boss and think certain things can change that can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is a lot of place to play there that I think people just don't realize that they have because Mm -hmm. of that massive fear, or again, because of just like, we're in kind of enculturated to just put our heads down and work like sheep. Um, Yeah. But there, you know, it doesn't have to be, like you said, quite so black and white. So I wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, my brain was just going like full speed in like seven directions of different types of things. Like, um, I want to talk about, I want to also acknowledge, like, I think in a lot of cases, the solutions with boundaries are actually a lot about collaboration, not about like building walls and saying like, no only. It like is a lot of negotiation and getting to the root of like what you need and why so you can actually 
more likely be able to find solutions that work for that. Um, and for some reason, my brain was giving me examples of people who like, you know, all the responsibilities of life. It's like managing your job, but then also whatever your household needs are and like feeding yourself and all these things or your family. And I was thinking about people who um, do things like food share where like someone provides veggies for the week and the other provides meat. And it, this was like going on in my brain too. So I just wanted to say that before I forget, but <clears throat> What I'm thinking about with the boundaries as collaboration is um, being willing to identify like what might be things that would help me um, have less exposure, like you said, or and or another question would be to preserve my units of cognitive, emotional, physical energy for what's important to me. And like, so the two things there is knowing what is important to you and like what you want to save it for. So like, for example, for like a cis man um, groomed to be an ideal worker, recognizing like maybe I have to unlearn my conditioning as an ideal worker so I can be there more for my family and like help more. Um, so that's just an example. But some, what was I saying? Oh, yes. Yeah, so some ways to, so knowing what's important to you that you want to save your energy for and why. And then what are some ways to do that? And like kind of getting clear on your options. So maybe um, I can share some examples of like things that I've seen with my clients so far um, in myself. I know for myself, I um, realized when I went back to work postpartum, which is like a whole long other story, but <laughs> I was working at a not-for-profit full-time and I requested while I was... Um, on my maternity leave, like I knew I didn't want to go back to work. And for lots of reasons, I felt like I had to go back to work, but I was able to ask and negotiate for a 32 hour work week instead of 40, knowing like I'll take a pay cut and all these things because, you know, so that's one. Um, another is I've seen lots of people negotiate for different hours, like different hours, um, such as if they're not a morning person, ask that there's no meetings on their calendar before a certain time, kind of a thing. Um, and again, I just want to acknowledge like these are not, these are, there are certainly types of jobs possible for it and like not for others. <laughs> so, um, um, another is, I'm thinking of so many like weird specific ones for myself. I'm trying to think of other things I have. So in healthcare, like a lot of times how it works is you're assigned for in different settings, like for, I'm thinking of rehab therapists, like myself, you're assigned a list of tasks to do. And um, so I think this could probably apply to lots of people, but like, for example, you, you're given this like list of patients you need to see mm -hmm. and like knowing like, this is how many that I can see and like, and work on time and go home and not um, letting that fear of like becoming homeless and dying uh, keep you from like sticking to that and knowing like it's actually staffing is actually not my individual responsibility. Like my job is to work the hours I'm supposed to be here and then go. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, like another one of my clients right now gets a list of patients to see for the week or like once they get a list they're supposed to see them within a certain number of days 
and being like, I told them I'd be available for this much. If I'm given more, I am not going to run myself into the ground trying to see them all for Mm -hmm. fear that I will like be fired because at at the end of the day, that's a staffing issue, not my personal responsibility. Um, Okay, so those are examples. Yeah, those are like one set of examples that's more like time. Yeah. Ish. But then um, more examples are in your workplace, like if there are certain tasks that drain you more than others, or like you have sensory needs and certain things are really a problem for you, would be asking for your boss, like what would be options for me to have changes around the structure of this thing? So like looking, knowing I'm I'm neurodivergent and looking back now, there are certain events that I had to do for work that I would be just have like meltdowns after and before because it was so terrible for me. But I thought I really should just push through. And looking back, it's like maybe it would have been great to like ask to not do those things. Well, give me an example. I'm curious. Like, do you oh, have well, my my examples for that is um working at the not-for-profit there we had fundraising events Mm -hmm. that's like large crowds of people really overstimulating Mm -hmm. really stressful it was terrible like I would be seeing like a double like Mm -hmm. at the events so like my brain was on the fritz Mm. and I hated it and everyone was stressed so I was like absorbing everyone's stress and it was like it was a terrible experience and probably if I had advocate if I had known maybe I'm allowed to like ask knowing like they may say no, but maybe I'm allowed to ask for like an alternate role where I can be behind the scenes and hiding or like do something else, do like clean up and set up only or different things like that. Mm -hmm. And I know that it feels scary to ask for those things. Um, And it doesn't feel like you're allowed to, but like, I think that, um, asking, like analyzing what's going on and asking for what, what possibilities might there be for this? Mm -hmm. Giving people the, don't pre-decide for others what they will be willing to do, because sometimes we may cut ourselves off of possibilities that would be totally possible. Yeah. I think that's really important. So I just want to jump on that and kind of unfold it a little bit more this idea that a lot of times we don't even ask for something because we've already made up in our own minds just with our little stories that it's going to be a no or it's going to be a problem and so we are taking away like the other person's agency or the other person's ability to be like humane or you know in unpredictable And just like the chance that they might actually say yes. And I also think it's really interesting because part of the piece here is that like even asking for something that I perceive will definitely get a no answer feels like threatening for some reason. Like it might make my boss mad at me that I even just asked a Mm -hmm. question where they are not obligated to give me a yes answer. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting to think about, like, why am I so scared to even just ask this question? Um, Like, what does Mm -hmm. that say about the relationship? You know, what does that say about my own fears? Um, Because I think it also goes back to like, just like being allowed to have needs or like preferences. 
or being allowed to like, like not allowed like yeah 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 the other thing I wanted to say and I'm curious to get your thoughts about this is like in the example that you just gave with the like networking fair or whatever like fundraising fair which by the way sounds like hell to me as well um <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it's interesting because I feel like another thing that we're kind of inculturated or that's kind of in our culture is that we are not trained to be creative problem solvers. We are trained to just like, this is the right way. This is the only way we have to go along with the status quo and not question it. Mm-hmm. So I think um, another piece here where you can just do some like muscle strengthening is even before you bring something theoretically to your boss or to your superior is to like, instead of asking them to problem solve it for you, which might make it so that you maybe do get a no answer. Cause they're maybe not used to doing that either. Like you can mm-hmm. creatively problem solve it like for yourself. And then the way that you present it, instead of just being like, you know, in your example, like, I don't like these fairs. Can we do something about that? Or like, I don't like these fairs. Is it okay if I don't work them? Present it instead. Like, I don't like these fairs, but here are the things that I'm willing to do instead. Or like, this is exactly the thing that I don't like about the fair. So is there a way that I could help on this project that doesn't involve like that type of stimuli? And these are like the solutions that I've thought of. Does any of these work for you? So just really working that muscle of like, And this is a word that I think Marie Forleo introduced into the general nomenclature, but like everything is figure outable. So just working that figure outability muscle and that like, Ah, I know there's a way to make this work and I'm just going to keep thinking and keep being creative until like we workshop it together. Yes. I love that so much. And, um, I was really a pop star at this job and I like proposed so many changes to systems and I found that at least for this particular boss and structure, it really helped to have um, the rationale for like, why am I asking for this? And here are some proposed solutions. And here's why these proposed solutions would be good for everyone. Mm, and having that in writing yeah. helps people process it so much better. And then it also helps you really flush out like, what is it that I'm really looking for and what might be alternate ways of um, meeting that need? Because like thinking about like the need is the top of the mountain and maybe there's like different paths there. And that also makes going into these types of scenarios less scary because it's it's not like it's either this or, or nothing. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, here's all these ways that I am willing to collaborate and problem solve. And um be really clear on like what you're available for and what you're not. Yeah. I think that's, I'm just having like another something pop in my brain where someone might think that like a certain type of job just isn't for them based on like the typical way that that job is normally done, or maybe their experience at a particular workplace. But in actuality, like maybe it's more flexible than you think it is. So what am I trying? I'm trying to think of like, so I worked at an architecture firm and it was just like typical hours, right? It was like nine to five, everyone's in the office, but like 
for actual architecture, as long as you're like hitting the client deadlines or like the project deadlines, it actually doesn't matter, matter if you work in the office or like what hours you work. And like, you know, so someone might just think like, oh, I can't be an architect because, you know, I don't do well in like a bullpen type environment, but like maybe, you know, you could request to work from home or maybe there is a different architecture office where you have like individual offices or whatever. Do you, I don't know. I'm like, totally. This no, like totally, theoretical no, scenario. That, that totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, I can't, oh, go ahead. Oh, um, oh, I don't know what but my brain just stopped on that. But the other thing that I wanted to say was um, the other muscle flexing that I feel like is really helpful for people is just being allowed to say no if they're asked to do something, Mm -hmm. Um, which again, feels scary. But what I have found really helps is having scripts that if it's like via Teams or email or something, you don't have to like re-figure out how to write it. Or you can like look at your notes app when you're asked um, and get back to them with like that wording. So you don't have to like re-figure out the wheel of how to say no, which feels really scary. And then you're in an activated state and you can't even like come up with the right words that way it's already done for you. But I feel like for many people, um, oh, there's another thing that I just thought of. It's helpful to have the words of like, oh my gosh, uh, thank you for thinking of me. I don't have capacity for that today, but I will tomorrow or next week or something, or just know, like, I don't have capacity for that today. And um, having words like that is really helpful. Like, it sounds so simple, but if you don't have the words, it feels like you have to say yes. So coming up with something that makes sense for like your work or your um the role the things you think you may be asked to do that drive you crazy is really helpful like I had um a client who's who would get paid like paged to be like come to this room and meet with me right now and they're in, already in their own meeting and they were like well I'm in a meeting and they're like well we need you here so like having a script of like I can't come right now but I can be there in 30 minutes can be helpful when you're like what the <laughs> You know, so having a pre-script that's like, can be helpful. Okay. So I have a lot to say about this. This is really interesting. So this is basically for the scenario where in order to enforce a boundary, because someone is trying to encroach on it, you are going to have to just hold it. And that means like saying no, or I can't do this, or like, this isn't in my job description or like not today, or like, it's already past the, you know, it's already past the end of the day time that I was supposed to leave. So yes, I think exactly what you said. If you are going to start creating boundaries there, you're going to have to learn how to hold them, which does mean like upsetting other people or telling other people no. So our brain is so wonderful and powerful that we can totally just imagine that to a great degree of what might happen and script it out. So we can kind of have our own back and not get caught off guard. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece that I was going to say just around the word no, is like getting used to to know from like both directions. And what I mean by that is both saying no, but also hearing no, because if you're going to be now advocating for yourself and asking for stuff at work, 
it might be that the reason that you never asked for something in the first place is just because it's so hard to hear no. Like for some people, it's like, it's not even that you hear no and you don't get the thing. It's just so painful to hear no. It doesn't even matter that you're not getting the thing. It's just like that experience of someone telling you no is like brutal. Like rejection. And yeah. So just painful. getting practiced in both ways of like both being able to accept a no without like having a total like heart break. Mm-hmm. And I know for me, mm-hmm. that's really hard. Like I hate, mm-hmm. you know, like making myself vulnerable and asking for something I really want and hearing no. So that's a thing to practice as well, because mm-hmm. sometimes your boss might tell you no, and that doesn't mean that anything was wrong or that you should stop asking in the future. So it kind of goes both ways, both being able to like tell someone no, and also to hear a no, because mm-hmm. I also think a lot of times your ability to hear someone's no actually unconsciously affects your ability to tell someone no. Because if your system thinks that hearing no is so problematic and so painful, it's not going to want to do that to someone else because it's that someone else is going to have the exact same experience. I love that point. And I feel like that goes like a way of describing that, that one of my clients used is like doing emotional labor at work that they're not being asked to do of like, it's not your job actually to protect other people's Mm -hmm. feelings from like inconveniences or disappointments and I think like the words that I hear especially people socialized as women say a lot is like oh but I feel bad Mm -hmm. oh I would feel so bad to ask for that and it's like why well because um it might inconvenience someone yeah or like I don't have a model of anyone else saying that and I think it's bad like would be bad so I think just generally the whole idea of like emotions are not necessarily bad. It's not your job to like prevent other people from feeling emotions. And it's not their job to prevent you from feeling emotions. It's a really hard, like it's much easier said than done. And it's like one of those lessons that you kind of learn on the spiral staircase over and over in life (laughs) for like every scenario in the world, at least me. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's a really big one. Um, Yeah. So I, I kind of want to, well, I want to go in two directions. I want to get to both of these things, but um, actually there's three things. So I, there was a point earlier in the conversation where part of this boundaries thing is getting really clear, like getting to the root of what it is that you need and why. So I wanted to see because I think this is another place where the water is really murky because we do grow up in these like capitalist waters. Sometimes we think something is a real need and it's not, it's just a layer that we've accepted as belonging to us. So, you know, like what are some, what are some ways to help people get clear on their like authentic, truthful, needs so that then they can have that as the foundation to work with. Mm, I love that. And I really want to give a quick client story as an illustration of like your example of there are things we think we want or need, but they're just layers of like kind of scripts or stories that we think about what we're supposed to want. Um, I had a client who was working as like a supervisor, a department um, director, and 
they were so stressed out and like had zero, their institution was giving like zero support and it was just a mess. And they got offered this job. Like they got sat out and offered this job um, as an assistant director to another director at a different institution that was more supportive and had more services and all these things. And it took a huge amount of like processing through this idea of like taking a demotion in your title. Mm. And um, their parents were like, you'd be going down to assistant director? Like, is that wise? These types of questions. So long story short, they did a lot of reflection on like what they wanted their quality of life to be like, what they wanted to feel like at work. And they decided to do it. And their quality of life is like fucking awesome. And they were able to negotiate the same salary. So like what, and they have less responsibilities because they're the assistant director, not the director. So like, I think that's amazing. Um, but it is like just getting hung oh, up on okay. status there. That was like the yeah. hang up where like well, externally, like you have quote unquote less status because it's a lower title. And that mm-hmm. was like such a bigger deal. But then yes, like when you get really clear on what you want, you're like, yeah. this is everything that I want. Like you said, like yeah. same money, less responsibilities, like greater quality of life. Who the fuck cares? Like if my but title is janitor and I'm happy, you know, like, yeah. Similarly, I hear this like all the time is people are like, oh, I'd never want to manage other people. Like I'd never want to be like the lead so-and-so. But then you get offered the job and it comes with the pay raise and it comes with the title and it comes with totally different responsibilities that people thought they didn't want and they feel like they should take it. Mm. And then they're miserable. Yes. This idea that like anytime there's a promotion opportunity, like it's a no brainer, you have to keep advancing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yep. So um, the ways, the primary ways that I feel like, so first of all, I feel like working with someone who can help you like get to the root of like what you really want to need is so helpful because like you said, we are literally not taught to like at all inquire or be curious or feel entitled to like look into that in our society for the most part. Second of all, the the activities that I recommend to my clients that they really like is um, there are two things. And one of them, I can't remember what the original exercise is, but I know I was taught it by someone who learned it from something called Lightyear Leadership Academy. Mm. But it's, I call it the circle of want. And basically, like, you draw a circle. And inside the circle, you write, I want, and just stream of consciousness, write down everything that you want without judgment and without evaluating whether or not it's possible for you to have it just to like see what's in there. And then on the outside of the circle, you write, I don't want any stream of consciousness, write all the things without judgment, without filtering to like, just really look at what's there. And the benefit of doing this over time is you start to notice more about like one what you really want that you're not admitting to yourself you start to notice where you're writing down things that you realize you've been taught that you should want but maybe you don't actually because of how you feel when you're writing it down and also patterns and themes yes Um, I love that mm -hmm. and like it sounds so simple but it's really, really powerful. Like if you do it for even a week, it's like 
insane what comes up. Um, and I've had lots of people be like, I hate this. Like, I hate doing this. There's something about like owning doing mm. it that's kind of emotionally charged and like doing it that can be painful. So I just want to give that for a warning. I think it can like bring up a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and it can bring up like a resistance to admitting what you want. It can bring up past trauma. Like it can bring up a lot of stuff. So just like, if you try it, <laughs> just know it may be helpful to do it like with someone supporting you and being able to like talk it over with a trusted person or a therapist or a coach or whatever. Um, but I think that's a helpful thing to like start flexing the muscle. Can I say and, one thing about that really fast? Yeah. Okay, cool. Cause I read about a similar exercise. It was actually in a book on magic, but it was similar. It was like this exercise mm -hmm. about kind of getting clear on your desires, but the Ooh. piece that I wanted to just kind of make explicit, um, is this piece where like, you know, in your exercise, as you're writing it down, pay really close attention to how you feel when you're writing it down, mm -hmm. because I think, and this magic book, what it suggested, and I don't remember all the way, but I think it was like, when you write down all your desires, same thing, like stream of consciousness, totally unfiltered, you want to say them out loud and be, and like, and see how much emotionality is in your voice when you say it and see like how authentic it feels to your system or like, just like kind of what comes up in your system. I think speaking it out loud is yet another piece. Cause it's, you know, like if I'm like, I want, um, there's something just about saying it with your voice. And I think Ooh, I love it too was like trying to say it in an excited voice and seeing if like, is it true that I'm really excited about this or like how much do I have to force myself to sound excited about this and what love. might be behind that? Um, oh my God. I love that so much. Well, and here's like the last piece I want to say about that is like, if you, if you do speak a desire out loud and it does feel like you really have to force the excitement, I want to say to me, that can be one of two things. And this is where discernment comes in. Either it's like an, it's a desire that isn't authentic to your system. It's something that you've been programmed with, or mm -hmm. it is an authentic desire. And it's what you said. It just feels uncomfortable to claim it. Like some part of us thinks that we'll never get it, or we don't deserve it, or it's too dangerous or superficial or vain or bad. So that's the place where like, just because it's hard to have excitement when you're speaking a desire out loud, then you have to get into like, okay, does this desire like just not belong to me? Or is it that I feel really uncomfortable about claiming it? Totally. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that so much. Because I think all of those things, like doing it, writing it, feeling it, saying it out loud, like all of those things, the, the root of that exercise then is like a lot of honesty about what's hanging out inside you. And then a lot of checking in with your body yes. and like, the truth of it feels like for you. Yeah. And, and I think that's that can be where... really activating. Yes. And exhausting too. Like yeah. it can be really exhausting to just be willing to hear our body. Cause again, speaking of capitalism, and this is something that could be a whole other topic. We, in order to be the ideal worker, we basically spend so much time repressing our body's words, our body's signals. I mean, Jesus, I remember these horror stories about like 
in the 1910s and the 1920s, women would work as sewers and they would have to pay 10 cents of their wage, which at the time was like a significant amount to go to the bathroom. So you can imagine these women oh, being gosh. like, do I get a pay cut or do I listen to my body and my bladder is screaming or do I, or do oh, I like intentionally God. like dehydrate myself? Do you know what I'm saying? So like oh, sometimes just yeah. slowing down and just checking our body for sensation can be incredibly activating. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, and the more we do it, the less activating it becomes. So that that is something, you know, to your point where if you can work with someone, do it because that can really help having that co-regulation and that attunement and that person kind of guiding you through what can feel really activating. Um, yeah. Okay. So do you feel like you want to say anything here? Um if yes, great. If not, what I really want to get to is this kind of worst case scenario. Like what happens if you do end up losing your job? You know, what happens if you do end up losing your healthcare? Like, I kind of want to talk about that. Cool. Yeah. There is one more thing that I thought of that I wanted to say, which is I've been like hyper-focusing lately on, um, the like cycle syncing and the menstrual cycle, yeah. like in a, a non-gendered way. Oh, um, same thought in a non-gendered way. Just for anyone who has that cycle or for anyone with any biology around that cycle? Both. Okay. First, for people who like have a menstrual cycle and a lot of like the resources around it are very gendered of like embrace being a woman kind of a thing. That's sort of like, but um, like kudos to you if that's like feels authentic to you, but for a lot of people it doesn't, but like looking at it, in a non-gendered lens and also looking at it from a neurodivergent lens because I've been doing a bunch of research on how basically sex hormones interact with uh, your like cognitive and behavioral things that makes people who are neurodivergent more likely to have like premenstrual dysphoric disorder and other things. And wait, um, and when you say sex hormones, you mean estrogen, yeah. um, testosterone and progesterone? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh gosh, I could go down a whole rabbit hole, but oh my gosh, I kind of want you to, and I kind of don't. Okay, I know, so right? I probably don't have time to today. <laughs> um, well, here, say what you're going to say. Maybe so I was thinking about problem. like, the reason I brought this up is because I'm thinking about like how capitalism is also built around like show up to work, have the same amount of production every day, kind of a thing built around the 24 hour male hormone cycle, like a biological sex males, what I mean. Um, and for people who don't have that cycle, who have like a monthly cycle where your hormones and your energy levels vary so much, um, the whole point of why I'm bringing this up is I think it can be helpful to lower your standards for like what you think you're supposed to be able to do or like how you think you should be able to feel while you do it at work. Mm. And one like concrete example is like, if you're sick sometimes it's easier to be like, oh, I feel like crap today, I have a headache. So I'm just going to like kind of do the bare minimum and be okay with it. Mm. But I think it's helpful to sometimes give yourself the permission to like do the bare minimum. Don't do your best. Do like C minus like passing grade work at your job just because, but then also, especially for like your individual, like literal physical and sensory or whatever needs 
to like give yourself permission to like not do your best all the time, I think is again, one of those things that's like, but what does that look like? And to kind of take some deconstruction to figure out for you, like, where are you going? Where are you doing more than you really need to with diminishing returns for like your overall well-being? I love that. And I think this is also something that it does relate to this larger conversation around boundaries and capitalism, because I think a lot of times too, the boundary is just like an internal boundary. Literally your boss and your coworkers never even need to know that like right. you're phoning it in on that day and right. like nothing bad will actually happen, right. <laughs> you know? And like, it's, it's uh-huh. really just like a conversation between you and you around yeah. like, what the fuck am I setting the standard for myself? And what happens if I phone it in? Like, nobody's going to die. I'm not going to like, you know, nobody's going to even notice. So like, maybe I can go a little bit gentler or it Mm -hmm. it can even be as simple of a thing. You know, I love that we're kind of using the menstrual cycle now as an example, because I was, you know, I work for myself, so I do have some flexibility, but for me with my menstrual cycle, I'm realizing I got this messaging around like the red tent and like when you're on your period, like you deserve to rest and lie around and do nothing. And like, the idea is that like, when you first get your period, at least for the first couple of days, if you can like go easier, do it. And, um, and so I was like, yeah, okay. Like, that's what everyone's telling me to do. That's what I'm going to do. And then there came a day where I was like, you know what, like I'm getting my period I feel like really crampy in my body. Like my body is hurting physically and I feel really grouchy. And for my system, what I'm realizing is that taking the day off is actually really counterproductive because what ends up happening is when I'm lying in bed, I'm like hyper-focusing on the pain. I'm like really beginning to ruminate around it. Like it's like, I'm, I'm intensifying the pain. I'm thinking a lot about the pain And so for me, what actually works better, I mean, and yes, you can take meds and I just, um, personally for myself, I'm like, it's not, um, it's not something that I want to do or like, if it gets bad enough, I will. But so for me, I realized that what actually works better for me is going pretty hard physically on a day like that, where I can like distract myself from the pain and like create a container where I am like doing a lot of like walking or a lot of cleaning or like a a lot of like, even like stuff that feels like heavier physically feels good because it's distracting, but I also feel productive. And so like for my system, that's actually what ultimately ends up feeling the healthiest, even though it is, you know, this is getting very long and I may or may not cut this from the podcast because I'm like, this is becoming a very... But I think, I think that period. does go to the point of like, it is usually unhelpful to like apply general recommendations to yourself without inquiring of your own system. What actually is helpful for me? Yes. And, and that, like, thank you. TLDR. Yeah. TLDR Carrie. <laughs> that is what I was trying to say. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. But like, totally like that example of like, when you're bleeding or when you're leading up to bleeding and your energy is lower, maybe don't expect yourself to like be able to like perform the way you usually do. And though, um, that doesn't mean you have to like 
call in or like take a PTO day if you don't want to, you know, like it just, yes, it's like the all or nothing. The question is like, what is, what do you actually want and need that day? Like what actually would feel in real time, regardless of what you've been told and regardless of what you thought you should want, like what actually would feel most supportive, like in that moment and like being willing to ask that really present. Um, what was like, I was going to say something else. Oh, I don't even know if I want to say this because <laughs> <laughs> we're like, I love talking about periods. I do think we should do um, a podcast on this. I think it's really interesting. Um, I am, I guess the one last question I do maybe want to ask on this without going too far down a rabbit hole is like, yes, for people who have, you know, female physiology and anatomy, like absolutely the hormone cycle is cyclical and it's kind of the moon cycle, like the 28 day cycle. Mm-hmm. How does this actually apply? And is it relevant to people who are on that male hormone cycle? So I think that is such an individual question because like the, the biological, like exact like physiological mechanisms if they're not at play in the cyclical way is like that doesn't mean you can't embrace like your own like natural cycle that feels good to you like you can go with the cycle of the moon even if you like weren't born with a uterus that originally had a cycle you know like you can embrace the ebbs and flows and and or see like what makes sense to you what would feel good to you about like when you want to try to basically like plan and simplify and organize then go hard then like start to rest and reflect and evaluate how you want to do it next time like that that's kind of like a natural thing that goes with the cycles that it makes sense that if that feels really good to you and your system to incorporate that in your own way oh my gosh so this is making this is so funny. We're completely jumping the tracks here. I do want to say, so I've been doing some dopamine research for my upcoming workshop and dopamine is something that I don't have enough knowledge to speak to whether it functions differently in male versus female physiology. But I do want to say, you know, how you said, if regardless of how what sex you have, like what anatomy you have, if you do want to approach something in a way that is like less like linear or less rigid. And then Mm -hmm. again, like just the implicit messaging from the culture is that it's bad to kind of have a setback or it's bad to kind of have a moment where you like want to scrap something and rejigger another piece. Or if it's, it's bad, if like you want to like take a pretty extensive break before you continue, like whatever the messaging is. I, um, I think one of the things that I'm understanding about dopamine and take this with a grain of salt is this idea that, um, if we do this kind of capitalist linear progressive thing without resting or without honoring our natural physiology, we can actually pretty quickly get ourselves into a state of low baseline dopamine, Mm -hmm. um, which does feel like burnout, which does feel like total loss of motivation, even for things that you used to love, which can be really disorienting and confusing for people. But the idea is that like, when you're kind of pushing yourself 
or when you feel highly motivated and you're doing a thing, naturally our system will experience a drop after a peak. And what we are conditioned to do by capitalism is to ignore that or to push through that or to be scared of that or to medicate that. Um, And then because we're pushing through it or we're like kind of artificially trying to build our motivation up through other ways, we are causing our system to release dopamine, which is not an like an infinite resource. So we're asking it to release excess dopamine, which means that we're actually going into a dopamine deficit in terms of like the more baseline dopamine cycle. Um, And I think that goes for anyone, regardless of their like sex or their gender is this, this idea of like pushing through unnaturally or like forcing your motivation unnaturally actually lowers your baseline dopamine and fucks up your motivation long-term yeah oh yeah so anyways I love that we just both went into like our little hyper like hyper focus area of current research brains unite anyways I want to circle back before we end to this to this idea of like okay you know this is everyone's fear. And unfortunately, like, while I think our brains do exaggerate it for us, like the system absolutely holds this up as a threat. Like where, if you lose your job, you lose your insurance, you lose your money, you lose your housing, like you're totally fucked. So mm-hmm. how do people deal with that? Mm-hmm. Either as a thought, actually, let's do both. How do people deal with that as a thought? And how do people deal with that if it becomes a reality? Yeah. So I think like sometimes they are connected of like dealing with it as a thought sometimes does mean like come up with what you would do if that happened versus it just being some nebulous like theoretical thing. So maybe they go together a little bit. So we'll go into the practical things, but know that one of the thought work things is like coming up with like literally what would you do? Like what would you do if you lost your job? As in letting well, yourself play out the tape on the worst yeah, case. Play it out. Yeah. yeah, play it out. See what you would do. And um, so I guess maybe it makes sense to do that first. But <clears throat> so maybe here's like a list of things I'm thinking about, which is like zooming out. It's like leveraging all your supports. Mm-hmm. Like who can you ask for help, for support financially, practically, for connections, for like other gigs. We move in with. <laughs> yeah, who can, yeah. Who can you move in with? Who can support you? Who can you get a loan from? Who can, like, what would, what do you, would you actually, like, what would you actually need to do? Like some people maybe ask that question. They're like, nothing because I have like so much, I have this amount in savings. Like I have three months of expenses and savings. So I would have time or something. Right. And some people would be like, I literally live paycheck to paycheck. So their answer is going to be different. But like leverage the resources that you need um, is a big one. And then I think another is like while you're looking for jobs, be aware of like what you are wanting and not wanting like we talked about earlier so that you can find something that's an even better fit than this one that you ended up getting fired because you were having boundaries. Like a place that's more supportive to the type of lifestyle or culture or whatever that you're looking for. Um, If you're able to like maybe use that time off to like 
do whatever the hell you want <laughs> for a little bit. In terms of health insurance, like if you're able to, um, depending on what your like health needs are, I know it's different for different places. Like in the U.S., if you have to like get um, use, why am I blinking on what it's called? I've used Cobra. it. Cobra or um, go on like a healthcare marketplace plan, like talk to a insurance broker and like get a different healthcare plan that to hold you over till you are able to access another one. Um, sell your shit that you don't really need. Yeah. Well, no, and I think it's interesting. So I love this because it can feel so scary. And I think even playing out the tape can feel really scary. And I think a piece of playing out the tape, there's a lot of unshaming work there that can be done that can just be really beautiful, even if the worst case scenario never does come to happen, which, you know, like for me, I've done this before. Um, I do it. I do it on the reg. I feel like I live my life pretty close to the edge, but like part of me playing out my worst case scenario was like, oh my God, like, I think I would have to move back in with my parents. And, um, And it's, I think it's a similar piece to like taking a demotion, even though it means like your quality of life is going to be the same or better. Like there's just so much shame. I feel like, especially for people who are white and educated or like affluent or like privileged, or I mean, maybe for, for everyone, but I, I think it does vary a little bit culturally and circumstantially, but like, there's just a lot of shame or it feels like a massive failure to move back in with your parents, which I think can make it feel like even more worse or more scary. You know, like you're just, you're even worried what your parents are going to say or like vibe at you. So I think just even unshaming certain pieces. Um, and then I think curiosity is one thing that I really want to encourage people to like, just bring out their like Gemini side of them, because even this piece of like being homeless, like losing your home, I have to say like at one point or another, I don't even know how I found this person, but there's a person or there was a person who was like YouTubing their life of living out of their car. And it was actually really interesting. They like gave practical tips on like how to shower. I think the way that they showered is that they had like a gym membership with a gym that was like countrywide or something. And they would give practical tips about how to sleep safely. And it was a girl. It was like a single girl who was living out of her car. She was a younger girl. And so I just, instead of it being like this, like horrible thing, I was like, wow, she's like a pioneer. She's really creative. Like this life actually works for her. She gets to do all this fun stuff. So I think- um, just even allowing yourself, like if that is your fear, honestly, and this could go both ways, but like, you know, just like watching a YouTube of someone who's like made it their life to live out of their car. Um, yeah, that's so it's fun. like, it really isn't. And I think the other piece I want to add there while we're playing in this, like worst case scenario waters is like our brain will again, tell us the story. Our brain loves permanence. So whatever the change that's going to happen, our brain always likes to attach this kind of vibe of permanence to it. But it's really important to know that like our worst case scenario is not going to be permanent. We're going to be there maybe for like a week, a month, maybe a year, maybe two years, but like the circumstances will change, you know? So like maybe you do have to move in with your parents and maybe it's only for a month even if it is for a year, it's not going to be forever. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's important to just kind of know 
that whatever the thing that you're scared of, it's not going to be a forever thing. I love that. Yeah. And I think, I think that's so wonderful because going along with that, even just like the thought work of it is, um, like knowing that your brain is doing like pulling this on you of like the worst thing is going to happen and you're, and it's going to be forever. And like, that's it is like not true. So it can be helpful. Most cases, not true probably, (laughs) but so it can be helpful to be like, okay, I see you doing that. And like, totally makes sense. You're doing that brain. And just acknowledging that that's happening is really helpful as you think through your options, being able to acknowledge with love and self-compassion that your brain is doing what the brain should do. And it it is true. Like it is part of how the brain works. The brain, I think I got the, I mean, negativity bias. I, I think most people are familiar with negativity bias. It's, it, it is how our brain keeps, wants us to survive and wants to keep us alive. This piece I learned from Karen Hawkwood, she calls it, I believe she calls it linearity bias, but the linearity bias is that like things are always going to continue exactly as they are now. So it doesn't leave the room for like radical change or like, you know, kind of quick disruptive change or like even like incremental change, like our brain, it's, it's the brain, it's the part of our brain. That's like, if this happens, it's going to be that way forever. So just yeah. watch for both of those biases, like you said. I love that. That's really um, I want to, not to get too granular, I do kind of want to say a piece around health insurance, because I know that health insurance, especially in this country, in the US, which is where we're recording this, is really tied to jobs. So I, I feel like... This does not necessarily apply for people who have chronic conditions and need access to ongoing healthcare. But I think people who are like mostly healthy can also fall in this trap of being like, if I lose my access to health insurance, I am like fucking screwed. And I will say like, there's a way where especially if it's just for like a moment in time, like just a few months or even a year where like not having health insurance is not the end of the world. And it doesn't preclude you from access to healthcare. And in fact, like when you go into like any given doctor's office or any given urgent care or an emergency, they always have self-pay options. And your brain can be like, that's wild. It's going to cost like millions of dollars. But the truth is the rates that hospitals charge insurance companies that you might see coming through, like when you do have insurance versus the rates that they charge people who are uninsured and self-pay are like drastically different. So if you're a relatively healthy person, it can actually be cheaper to be uninsured as long as nothing crazy happens. But again, like we have to statistically think of like the probability of something crazy happening and not let your brain kind of, you know, go too crazy. It can actually be cheaper to do what I call self-insure, which is just like pay the damn bill when you need to go to the damn doctor, but (laughs) that you're not paying, you know, like however much it is monthly, right? Like, so do the math in your insurance is a huge mindset. Yeah. So I think that's so helpful. So for example, like if you're paying, I don't know, like I think most people pay anywhere from like 100 
to like a thousand dollars a month for health insurance, either through their work or if they're like self-insured. So just imagine like now you're taking that a hundred to a thousand dollars a month that you were paying into health insurance and just setting it aside, setting it aside, setting it aside. And that becomes your own little like bucket that you dip out of when you do have to self-pay. So, and it really, I think a lot of people get tripped up on that. And I think it doesn't have to be as scary or as bad as, as you think it is, especially if, if you don't have anything super chronic going on. I had to do that. Um, when I, me and Leah were between health insurances, my daughter was sick and we had a sick appointment and I think we paid less for the self-pay than we did when we were on health insurance for the one visit. It's like crazy. The was yeah. more than like the uninsured self-pay. So wow. Yeah. See, so yeah. it's interesting. So again, mm-hmm. like just before you let your brain tell stories, like, and it does, and I, sorry, I'm like talking over you. You know that it's figure outable. Yes. No, that's figure outable. But I also will say, you know, you and I have kind of been alluding to working with like a coach or a therapist. A lot of times it can be extremely helpful when something is this activating and this scary to your system to have someone else in the room with you as you're either doing the research or playing out the tape or getting curious because yes. that other pe- person can really help keep you regulated. So you can actually begin to explore and play with these possibilities without getting too freaked out and too scared. And your system just going into like, ah, oh, this will never work. I'm going to die. Yes. So, because it sure does that. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, I did. Yeah, I did just want to talk through that piece. Is there anything else we want to say about boundaries as systemic disruption boundaries? And these are all your quotes. Boundaries is an exquisite everyday rebellion, rebellion against oppressive systems. Is there anything well, else that we didn't cover? Yeah, I think boundaries is like, I think of it as like underneath the surface, there's this giant um, body of water and of like knowing what we want in our desires, like advocating for ourselves, finding what looks like our most lovely wellness or life situation. And I feel like there's lots of different ways to like tap into like how to get there or what that is in different wells. And I think boundary one well that like is a really helpful way to get there um, because you have to ask these types of questions of yourself of like what you really want and what are all the options to get that and how do I negotiate? And then how do I like deal with the activation that comes from like my conditioning or like the situation to like find the answer to that. So I think boundaries can be a really cool way to access that. But then because how you do that and how you model for that and like the chain of events that follows from you doing that work does impact other people. It's like really powerful in so many ways. So that's why I think it is disruption. That's why I think it does help disrupt systems and make things better for everyone. And I think there's probably so much more I could talk about that but I do have to go in a few minutes. (laughs) Okay, cool. Um, Yes. I want to respect your time. I think we got through a lot. I just want to say, I love that we're ending on this piece, which you said that like, when you start naming your boundaries in a system, it's actually better for everyone. And I think that's really important to keep in mind because like when you start acting, advocating for yourself and kind of showing others what's possible, showing management what's possible, then I think like it's the, 
conditions and the opportunities for everyone become better. Like everyone kind of begins to be like, oh, I could do this for myself too. Or like, oh, it's interesting. Like this person really is clear on their needs. I wonder what my needs are. So it really is helpful for everyone. So I love that piece. And then I love this piece too, where I think I'm going to say it in a different way, but this idea of boundaries as being a portal to accessing your own authentic self-knowledge and your own individual pursuit of happiness. Oh my gosh, that's good. Yeah. So, but I mean, that's basically just what you said. I just, yes. And I want to add in like, um, a portal to like, um, I don't, I can't think of the right word, but to like, um, really rich relationships too, like community. Cause I think it strengthens it. Okay. I love that piece. And I can totally see that. I can even see that just in like where you're beginning to ask and advocate for yourself and you're having to say no, and you're having to hear no more. And it does build in that, like, oh, I'm not going to get totally rejected or abandoned if I have to say no, or if I hear a no. And that in and of itself is very strengthening for a community or for a relationship. So I can totally see that. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Well, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you. You are an expert at boundaries and we'll say more about where people can find you and learn more about boundaries and like how amazing boundaries work is um, on the outro and in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for that amazing conversation, Carrie. Carrie is constantly releasing amazing programs, challenges, and offerings. To find out more about Carrie and how to work with her, visit her Facebook, Instagram, or website. And I'll link those in the show notes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a quick review, subscribing to the show, or sharing it with your friends. This is a beautiful reciprocity and generosity practice for yourself, as well as a way to support content and podcasters you enjoy. To submit a question and be considered as a live coaching guest on the podcast, please visit my website, celestinawild.com. Group coaching is an affordable way to work one-on-one with me, witnessed by supportive community. My group coaching container is called Cocoon, and the dates, times, and registration links for the October and November calls can be found in the show notes, along with all the contact info and relevant details for today's show. Bye for now, and sending you lots of love.